Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. James Quinn, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. Thanks, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So James, you're the uh, managing partner of Q9 Capital which is a Hong Kong-based business. And, and we're, I'm looking forward to finding out a lot, lot more about yourself and your business. But why don't we start with yourself and some, give you some background about where you kind of grew up, where you studied, and so forth. I grew up in the Chicago area. I uh, went to the University of Illinois for undergrad. I studied political science, although really, I guess, kind of studied macro. I studied a lot of economics, political science, regional studies, I was just pretty much always interested in macro, although I didn't know that it was called macro or what that really was. I just knew that if it was big, important type things. Uh, I loved to read about them. I probably would have even majored in history if I had the guts, but I thought that was really useless from an from a employment perspective. So I said, okay, well, maybe political science, I can do something. I graduated thinking I might work for a think tank or do something like that. So at this point, like I had no connection to the financial markets, which is where I ended up making my career. I was, you know, a complete random occurrence of sort of getting into my background, which is really about trading, which I'll get into in a bit. But yeah, so I studied kind of macro, thought I'd do think tank. And I had my cousin's husband, I uh, was working for UBS. And uh, it was actually UBS O'Connor, if you remember back in the day. So I've been in finance for more than 20 years. So UBS O'Connor used to be a thing. And I, of course, didn't know the difference between UBS, UBS O'Connor, what a Swiss bank was versus another bank. I, I knew what I was interested in, but had very little plan, right? And so I said, oh, let me send this guy my resume. Maybe I said, can you give me a job in research? You know, if I could write about this stuff, that might be cool. I just wanted to keep learning about this type of thing. And so he got back to me quite a bit later and he's like, oh, actually, I left this firm and I went to work for a much smaller prop trading firm on the CBOE floor. In Chicago. And he said, the managing partner saw your resume and he wants to interview you. And I mean, I had no idea what this job was. And this was basically an options market making job, right? So he kind of had, he had to convince me actually to go to the interview, which is kind of a crazy thing because you find out later, like some kids are just growing up, hoping to have the opportunity to get in the door to do this type of thing. Right. And I had, I had no idea, you know, what it was. So 
I learned enough to kind of try to get the basics of options. But honestly, I was at the level of like, okay, call is the right to buy, put is the right to sell in terms of knowledge base when I showed up at that first interview. But I think, you know, it was maybe refreshing for them that I was just such a clean slate. You know, you know, I mean, as you know, if you hire kind of junior people, you're mostly looking for the thought process and things like that and not looking for a tons of experience, you know, in financial markets, right? And so they were asking me what my hobbies were. Did I play games, this types of thing? You know, they weren't like leaning on that. But I was just asking a ton of questions. Like, wait, I don't understand how this works. And how does this work? And that probably ended up helping me. I mean, I guess the funniest part of the story is that they offered me a job, but I demanded to go back in there twice more to ask <laughs> questions before I accepted it. And at some point, the managing partner was kind of like, dude, you're getting like a total beginner's cheap job, just either like fish or cut bait and take this. So I ended up I ended up doing that, um, worked on the trading floor for this prop trading firm. And then just by, you know, I mean, that's the short version of a story that just takes me up into coming to Asia, working for the big banks, et cetera, et cetera. So was that on CBOE or CBOT or? Yeah, it was a CBOE, CBOE. And what was the name of that firm? It was called Letco, L-E-T-C-O, Letco. They were kind of well-known firm back in the day. And obviously O'Connor is a household name because I, I came up along the uh, the similar stream with Cooper Neff, which is a competitor to O'Connor. And uh, of course, the third firm was um, Chicago Research and Trading, CRT, right? So they were the big three options houses when uh, when I was entering the, the city of London as well. So this is very familiar. So you became an options market maker at that point or trainee on the floor? Yeah, I was a clerk and then an options market maker. You know, so the other kind of part of the story was since I was into macro, which I you know, didn't actually really know what that was as, a, as an undergrad graduating, they had somebody who was going to start a desk in Singapore. And I was like, oh, I really want to work on the Singapore project and help them, and you know, eventually move to Singapore and run this desk. So while I clerked, while I did that and sort of trained up, I also worked on starting this new business in Asia for the firm. So I eventually became a market maker, had my own book, was on the trading floor. But basically, the guy who was doing the Singapore business ended up not doing very well, and he left the firm. And so, you know, just show that it was a totally different time. The managing partner comes to me and is like, hey, man, I know we promised you the Singapore thing. We kind of feel like we owe you, and that's clearly not going to happen now because this guy isn't, isn't here. But we have this massive book right now in Telebras and all, you know, Brazilian telecom companies. We made a ton of money in the Telemex time period and the, and the peso devaluation previously in the 90s. And he's like, I think we want to send you down to Brazil to open a desk to try to do some ARB locally versus what we're doing here. And I had no business being offered this opportunity. I was like way too junior for this. But yeah, different time and place. And I, you know, I think I couldn't have said yes faster. <laughs> and I ended up going down there and running this sort of Latin American, you know, markets desk and our book versus Telebras and all the ADRs. And it's all an option space down in Brazil for a couple of years. Eventually came back after devaluation and it was, tech was really, really hot in the US. And that was kind of like the peak of the dot-com bubble. And then I served as a DPM, which is like a specialist, probably familiar with the term, on the floor for major tech stocks, uh, Cisco being the, the most major one. And then that was at a time when if you ran the book on three names or five names, especially as a specialist, that was a lot. Of course, when it went electronic, you would run books on 250 names. But that was like inconceivable for us at the time. And this is still as an equity options market maker? 
still is an equity options market maker. So I was, you know, pure trader by that point, except for that all the business parts of starting trading desks and stuff, which I got a lot of experience in very early. But yeah, I was basically an equity options market maker and spent most of my career as a derivatives trader, buy side, sell side in one form or another, you know, over the years. Right. So, so where did the MBA come into it? That's a funny story there, too. I was actually working for a, a hedge fund, uh, mostly out of Hong Kong um, in the early 2000s. I had no intention of getting an MBA, actually. And in fact, I'm on record somewhere. I think it's in the Far Eastern Economic Review because uh, I had a friend who was a writer and he was writing about MBAs. And I was on record saying, like, I think it's really kind of useless for people who are specialists, like traders, et cetera, et cetera, to do that. I don't really see myself getting one, like literally in print saying that. So after I moved from this hedge fund, I, I ran my own commodities trading firm in Chicago for like four years. And so at that point, I was like, oh, am I going to continue to run this business? It was quite an interesting business, you know. But I thought, oh, maybe I want to study something more. And the University of Chicago was right there. I was back in Chicago. And I, I started taking just graduate classes, you know, even though I don't know how I could have possibly done that. Because, you know, when you run your own business, you're like the busiest person ever. But, you know, I guess I didn't have kids yet, et cetera. And I just was like, oh, I'm going to do this. This is so cool. So I was studying that at night. And then I'm like, you know what? I think I wanted to get a degree. And, you know, I applied to get an MBA because the other alternative was like, master's PhD, which is like a lot longer home. But what I kind of figured out, which I was a little bit wrong about in terms of the MBA, there's definitely the generalist thing, which is, I think is actually pretty valuable, or certainly can be. But they offered an opportunity to do it a lot of specialist classes. So I did like a lot of options modeling, a lot of fixed income modeling, a lot of stuff, which is, you know, really financial mathematics. And since, you know, I was a macro guy and not like a physics major, it was actually really good for me to go back and do a lot of this stuff, you know, to use an analogy that I use sometimes. I started off as a driver on the racing team, but to go back to mechanic school for a little bit really kind of helped me become a better driver over the long term. Yeah, this is really fascinating because because it's something that's been bugging me for the last 20 years myself, because I have a lot of uh, sort of cousins in the US. And obviously, I come from the UK where we don't value an MBA as much as the US guys do. And now, particularly with trading, I was just like, I used to continuously argue with them, you know, if you were a trader, you know, why the hell would you go to do an MBA? You know, what value does that add to you? And, you know, the, the classic. I thought exactly the same thing. I thought exactly the same thing. But I still talk to my professors. And like I said, I kind of made it a bit more of a financial mathematics um, degree than a pure MBA. But I thought a lot of the other stuff was interesting. Like, you know, you don't know what you don't know about marketing until you start learning about that kind of thing, right? And that was also interesting. No, exactly. Now, look, as it look, I mean, it comes full circle as a as a business owner. I'm sure it becomes very, very useful again, right? You look at sort of how to manage businesses and scale and growth and marketing and finance, and you know, which is where an MBA comes into it. So, I guess you know, when you're more generalist as a as a CEO, which kind of brings us on to to Hong Kong, then. So, it's, at this point. You kind of complete the MBA and then you are now in Hong Kong. And I complete the MBA. No, I'm still in Chicago at this point. And because I was in Hong Kong previously and spent some time in Asia, I had a network in Asia. I also, my network from Brazil, a lot of those folks happened to move to Asia. And so I knew people just globally at this point and I've been around a little bit. And I actually got a phone call from a an old poker buddy in Hong Kong. So yeah, here's another like, I guess, you know, it was a friend for sure, but also just, you know, somebody I played poker with. He was running a desk uh, at Credit Suisse at the time, and he's like, we're looking for a prop ball guy, and I know you've done prop ball for, because I was actually doing prop ball at that point, and um, 
but we want to put it on the sell side of the bank. Obviously, those things that was a different time as well. You know, he called me, and we were sort of settled in Chicago. I just had uh, my son. Again, I was like, uh, no. And then, of course, negotiations happened, and no eventually turned to yes. And actually, the first move was, you know, we picked up and went to Tokyo. So I found myself in Tokyo in um, 2007, which turned out to be a great experience. I've been in Asia for the last 15 years. But yeah, you know, I was not prepared for that at all. I mean, it was pretty to live internationally. It was a fantastic experience. But like, I was not a Japophile, like a lot of people who kind of go there and study the language, et cetera, et cetera. I had to, you know, play catch up on all that. But yeah, obviously, you know, by the timing, soon after I involved, I was, you know, 20 hours a day dealing with the financial crisis and, and that type of thing, trying to run the book and survive and navigate all that was happening in the industry and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it was, we, we loved the place. It was a great experience. How did you go from there to Q9 Capital? Came to Hong Kong in 2012. Uh, was worked for Deutsche Bank for eight years across Tokyo and Hong Kong. And um, in 2017, I went to do some other things. I was looking at crypto and when I was watching what was happening in crypto. So I remember being on the trading floor and at the time of like the Mt. Gox hack, there was quite a few other guys on the trading floor who were invested in Bitcoin or, you know, had some, you know, coins there, had some money there, et cetera. And I remember actually thinking, Thank God I was too lazy to figure out how to do that because then I didn't lose any money on that exchange. Like I would, you know, because they had been talking about it and I was like, oh, I got to do this, but I'm too, you know, I'm too busy and I never got around to it. But obviously the joke was on me. A lot of people recovered a lot or held, you know, crypto elsewhere and, you know, to be owning Bitcoin back in, you know, 13, 14, obviously that did really well. So when it came back into the public purview in 2017, 18, I thought, I don't want to miss this again. Like, this is clearly a real thing. And it reminded me of two things, which was sort of, you know, formative for me. One was derivatives as a business inside banking, et cetera, and how that expanded and how those financial market, you know, financial markets changed because of what derivatives became both listed, but also, you know, OTC and all the different products that came out and structured products as a business. And I was a little bit young to take advantage of that, you know, in terms of being a you know, senior and really running business and that, you know, I kind of got into that a little bit later, but I was along for that ride. But also the dot-com bubble and, you know, yeah, sure, it was a bubble, but it turned out to be obviously the internet being the most impactful, you know, technological advance that we've seen in the last 20 years. And I thought crypto is clearly V2, they call it V3 these days, fine. But, you know, basically, you know, this transfer of value thing immediately made sense to me, even though I'm not technically, a, you know, I'm not a programmer, I'm not a tech guy. So I saw the opportunity to build something cool in the financial markets. But, and all at the same time, being in a space which I was like, I've seen this happen, you know, I've seen this rhyme. Let's try this again. So your first sort of interaction with crypto would be what, personally, or was it as, as a business? I mean, I started buying some, you know, but I, like I was late, right? I was buying some in 2017. I was not buying, you know, like I said, I completely missed it. I eventually went to a firm called Kinetic uh, in Hong Kong, which was kind of a big deal at the time. And it still exists in its various you know, particular forms doing very more specific things. But it was sort of a generalist trying to be kind of a maybe an investment bank, if you will, or certainly a sales and trading desk, plus, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of banking desk in crypto at the time. And uh, that's how I got interested in it. And I remember starting there and they were kind of focused on doing OTC trading as the main way of 
facing customers. I was ahead of market, so it was kind of like being head of sales and trading. And I was quickly like, hey, we're totally not going to make money in OTC trading long term. Like the big boys are coming in. They have much better systems than us, much more capital to put in. And you know, if you're if you're giving me a simple product, that's going to be that marketplace is going to be won by power, right? Investment power, et cetera. I said, but we have good customer relationships and we can build complicated stuff and we can move out the product curve and nobody was really doing derivatives yet. I mean, Deribit was, you know, nothing like it is today and certainly nothing was trading OTC. And I said, we need to push into derivatives and push kind of far out the product curve now and really be doing things like treasury management and um, offering structure products and these kind of things, which people are definitely talking about now and definitely doing, but at the, the time was kind of new in crypto, but I wasn't reinventing the wheel. I was just doing traditional financial stuff in the crypto marketplace for people who hadn't seen it before and, and trying to take advantage, which we still do at Q9, of some of the peculiarities or you should say, you know, innovations really within digital assets and crypto that allows us to do those things in certain ways. And so eventually when Kinetic decided to you know, downsize, I went and just started pitch this business like, you know, let's do structured products, let's do more complicated things, kind of a private wealth offering, if you will. And I met my current partners at Q9. They were also looking to like, hey, we want to do this OTC desk. And I kind of had the same conversation. I said, we will not make money as an OTC desk. But this other thing, the market needs this, which is really investment products, right? And we'll be able to win because we have a good you know, combination of tech and financial background as a firm. And so we'll actually be able to deliver these investment products to people. And I think, you know, there's a marketplace for that, that as it goes more mainstream, there is going to be more investors relative to traders. That is just the way of the world. I mean, not everybody can spend all their free time trading, you know, or being active, right? Exactly. It's, it's one of the realizations that Mark and I came to at CoinFlex, uh, you know, about 18, 18 months ago, essentially, it was exactly the same thing, which is that rather than look at kind of investors as, or traders as active or passive capital, uh, sorry, as retail or institutional, beg your pardon, we actually looked at them as passive or active, active being people who trade kind of every day or a trading firm whose job was to trade in essence and passive capital being everybody else. And obviously that's, you know, by far the vast majority of the world, 99.9% of the world by number and by capital. And, and it was that moment that kind of helped us kind of gain clarity around product design. And so I completely agree, agree with, you know, kind of your, your statement there. So in, in that regard, as Q9, you know, for listeners who are not familiar with the business, do you want to kind of run through what sort of different stops, types of products that you guys offered? I know you mentioned structured here and, 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 you know, in a very high level, but. We do start with exactly the framework you just mentioned, which is, you know, passive investors versus active investors. And we refer to them as investors versus traders. But, you know, you know, it's that semantics, right? At the end of the day, it's like how much time and energy do you want to spend? you know, making your decisions and how much is it really going to be depend on your capital and your capital commitment, right? So we have a full product set and really it's about making it easy to invest in crypto. And so we have a large range, like a comprehensive set, like one might have at a, a large brokerage firm or a, you know, even a sales and trading desk at a bank. So we have spot trading. We have earned fixed income, you know, type products. We have uh, derivative products, which allow people to enhance yields uh, through derivatives. And we have auto investment products, which basically, you know, automated portfolio investing, which can actually feed into any of our other products. Like you can make that partially derivatives and partially fixed income or partially, you know, just holding coins 
and investing in those over time. And so, you know, on a comprehensive basis, even, you know, obviously you take a platform, which is we've only launched in January 21, right? We're a new crypto firm, which is expanding quickly and then managed to get this product set up pretty fast. But when you think about that product set and you go to, I love analogies, you think like a a Charles Schwab even, who kind of has everything as a broker on their platform. They have a lot of investment products. Well, really, what is it really? It's funds, it's derivatives, it's spot trading of, of some type, right? And then you know, fixed income products. And everything else is kind of a subset, if you will, of those things. You know, I mean, there are different kinds of spot instruments, obviously, that you can invest in. So between our auto invest, our portfolio products, between derivatives products, our fixed income products, and our direct spot access, we sort of have all that stuff. But we deliver it to it in a very crypto-native way. From a user experience standpoint, you don't have to do anything fancy or worry about blockchain or do anything like that. It's just we're delivering the coins and the investment product directly to the client instead of saying, oh, well, give us some money. We're going to put it in a fund. You call us in next quarter or next year and we'll tell you how we're doing. So it's it's a full suite of products like, like a broker in that way. Does that mean that each of your clients' solutions are bespoke? Is it kind of tailored to each each customer? We always do a low-touch, high-touch combination. So really, we're living in a low-touch world because we want to have everything online and available to clients. Now, they can talk to us, call us, ask us questions about any of the products. And what we do is basically, if they want to do something high-touch, you know, we do it for them. But what's interesting about crypto and digital assets, if they want to do something high-touch, it means they're digital bear assets. Hey, I want to combine these four coins. I want to rebalance you know, every week. And I want 20%, you know, to be an underwriting program that's going to kick off if, you know, we're spot is trading here or here. Because they're digital bear assets, I don't have to go start a fund to do that. I can just literally create algos that puts them into each of those products, which are already on our platform. So now we have a high touch solution for one of those clients. And this is effectively a set of instructions, right? Like that puts them into the strategy. But then what's really interesting is because these are all digital bear assets, if that is even remotely interesting to the rest of our clients. I can do that for a lot of people. And if it doesn't have to be very big at all for us to go, you know what, let's just add this onto our UI and make this a completely, you know, low touch, low touch availability, you know, of this product. Because, you know, we just came out with the auto invest product in March. It was our last kind of big launch in terms of, you know, actual physical traded product. We started with spot and we went to earn and went to structured products and now we have auto invest. But each new iteration becomes more and more modular. So the low touch user can literally go on and be like, here's my rebalances, here's my portfolios, here's how I want to combine it with yields and you know, earn and our other interest bearing type, or I should say yield-based products. So it, the answer to your question is both. Like we do high touch and we do do. But like, it's really about getting to solutions that are as low touch as possible. 99% of our clients trade electronically, okay? 99%. So, and it's not because we're unavailable. We're very available. It's because we are trying to make, it, we're, no, we're trying to make our client experience like better low touch. It's actually easier for me to use the system than talk to you, right? Like that's where we want to be. I think I've heard traditional like a, a private wealth firm or like a traditional finance firm, they often say in their meetings, you know, we think it's really important to have a digital offering to complement, you know, the relationship that we have with our clients. And we flip it on its head and say, we think it's really important to have a relationship to complement the digital offering that we, we have for our clients. 
the reason I ask is because obviously, you know, you guys are a customer of CoinFlex. It's you know wonderful to have you, but we we're clearly clearly a marketplace. You know, we kind of have these kind of interesting yield bearing products, Flex USD, the AMM Plus, but we're a marketplace. You know, where we sort of connect uh, lenders with borrowers, liquidity providers with liquidity takers. And I was trying to you know trying to understand how in in the crypto space is obviously very co-mingled with a lot of firms doing a lot of different things. We are, I think, fairly clean in 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 the structure of of our platform. And I was trying to see how you know you see sort of marketplaces like ourselves versus wealth managers, asset managers, money managers like yourselves who are, you know, operate operating within within your own parameters and how you see the two interacting as crypto grows. Yeah. Um, well, let's go back to analogy land. So, right. So you, you basically have exchanges, like you said, they're marketplaces, right? The primary thing is that you create liquidity and you create a marketplace for various different products, which prove to be interesting to people. But you have to get that part right. You have to create the liquidity on that. That marketplace has developed, right? And then there are obviously that market is for something. And so that is a particular risk or that people want to put on, et cetera, et cetera, that helps them hedge or helps them take a position, et cetera. Right. So it works in crypto. It works in every other marketplace. It works in things that are people don't think about trading, like, you know, the Tokyo tuna market, et cetera, et cetera. Right. These are all different types of marketplaces. Then you might use from traditional finance analogy, a broker. What's a broker? Well, a broker is going to take those different marketplaces and put them all into one place so that their customers can access all these different marketplaces, right? And so it's kind of an aggregator of these different marketplaces. And so it offers those different products, right? Now, you have a large broker, they're going to, you know, offer some investment products on top of that. And that's where you start to get to like maybe what private banks and or investment banks do on the sales and trading side is, they give people access to marketplaces, so they have that kind of gateway type or aggregator type thing that brokers have. But they also create their own products based off the different risk profiles that they're feeding from these different marketplaces or other brokers, right? So they can do stuff completely bespoke, but they can also manufacture products that they're selling to a lot of people as well, right? The fourth thing that would be more like fund management, which is like, hey, just like I said earlier, give me some money and then I'll tell you how we're doing later. Right. But that's different than a product marketplace where you're offering. So we're solidly in the kind of what private bank investment bank does combined with the brokerage type thing. Right. We take marketplaces like yours. We may either feed those prices directly to the clients because they're interesting in themselves. But we're also combining, you know, hey, your price, like what you guys are doing here, and that's creating a certain yield, which might be interesting. And then we package that perhaps with a derivative product to offer like a higher yield to our clients with a certain risk profile, et cetera, et cetera, that they can do. So we can be very innovative around that because of the background of the firm and, and people working here, we have both kind of a risk and product background at the same time. So I don't need every product to just be something I can slap a spread on. In fact, we don't really, we actually just create new products like a bank and charge like one price for them. So if we need to manage risk for one of those products, but the other two like can be hedged basically perfectly and immediately, we may do that, right? Or we may do something that we're just creating the convenience for a client, but we have that utility. And then combined with the utility I described earlier around trying to bring it to a low touch way in the best way possible, right? Because that's what the clients prefer. Ultimately, that's sort of how we, we view ourselves. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting because obviously you're, you're totally right from a liquidity taking perspective. Because, for example, you know, I think we've just chatted about this before, but you know, the dual currency product, which has been very, very popular, not just yourselves, but other other similar firms in in particularly in the region, in in the Asian region. Obviously, you know, using the AMM product on CoinFlex to hedge against the dual currency product is a perfect hedge essentially because you're hedging a a long gamma position that you have in the underlying using the AMM product. So, so it's, you know, it's fantastic to have be a beneficiary of, of your kind of innovative structured products as an exchange, because it's a different type of flow. It's a really good type of flow. And obviously we're seeing more and more innovation around this, for example, DeFi option vault. So, you know, over a billion dollars now, and that's excited me no end because it means that, you know, again, retail to, to use your analogy of low touch is again, a very, very relatively low touch way of a method for retail customers to earn yield on coins that are not listed on exchanges, you know, anything but BTC, ETH or, or BCH, for example. Our yield product is, you know, is very similar to, you know, our DCI products, very similar to option vaults, right? Option vaults are really just DCI products that are effectively cash settled in, you know, auto rolling. And we have auto rolling versions of, you know, our yield product available to our clients. But I think this is just the first step of what we're going to see in the derivative space. It's going to move up the complication curve, if you will, and there's going to be light exotics if some folks are already offering a little bit of that. And that's where, you know, and we built the, the platform to be, you know, we built our own model and we built it to be very robust so that we can basically continue to offer innovative products and not have to wait for other folks to invent cool stuff. But at the same time, like taking your example, what you guys did with AMMs and bringing that as your main liquidity source to your exchange and flipping the whole thing on its head, we can still look and go, oh, that guy's doing cool stuff. How do we deliver that to our clients? So that's kind of the promise to our clients, right? Which is, you know, and when they say like entrepreneurs, when they solve their own problems, that's when they're, they know they're in a good business. Like even for me, who's technically an insider or, you know, quote unquote, you know, I, I don't consider myself an expert, but I have been in financial markets for a long time and now crypto for some years. It's basically impossible to keep up with every innovation. Right. So he uses a team of people around me at Q9 to like, oh, this is what's going on here. We need to offer something in this. We need to offer this product. Right? It's, it's very hard for one person to do it. So when we see something cool, like what you guys are doing and how, you know, this basically market structure around AMMs creates this really innovative um, yields and uh, innovative product and uh, higher yields than some of the competition out there. Like we're like, I want to deliver this back to my clients so we can basically pay these guys, right? And that's how we look at it as well, right? Like what are other people doing that's innovative and how can we bring this to our clients as soon as possible? So what's where's, uh, where's Q9 heading next? What's, what's on the roadmap for the next year, say? We kind of have our major, let's say, product offering like most of the major products. Now it's going to be more um, enhancement and innovation, especially around auto invest and our derivative products have more choices within those things to make it even easier and more automatic for people to make their investment choices. And they can be involved as, as little or as much as they want, right? They can put it in a, you know, a DCA, which does everything with specific rebalances, or they can be very active and revisit everything they do. And so we're going to have, keep having more enhancements around that. Just actually in a few weeks, we're going to roll out complete performance analytics, which I think is really exciting. So, I mean, if you're in crypto, you know, uh, if you have money slash coins somewhere, they do not tell you how much money you made. There's just no demand for that in crypto, basically, because of the history of a, 
of a marketplace that's very, you know, decentralized and that you're going to trade across a lot of different exchanges. And, when, you know, if you're trading in five different exchanges, it doesn't, you don't really care how much money you're making at, at one particular exchange, or it's still not the right number. But our clients are, like, we, like we've talked about, they're investors, and they're going to have a relationship with us, you know, primarily or one or two other, but, right, they're going to be focused on consolidating the relationship, right, and, and their capital into one place, which has the best products and services. So we have complete performance analytics. You log into Q9. I mean, actually, it's on the platform already. We're going to have an enhancement of it coming out in a couple of weeks. You know how much money you made. I mean, it seems like a stupid and easy thing. Like I mentioned, you know, Schwab earlier, you open $5,000 equity account. to tell you how much your performance is. But go to most exchanges, you don't know, right? You don't get good performance analytics, right? And so this is part of the overall sort of investor enhancement that we're building and coming out with. We're definitely guilty of that as well, you know, as from a, you know, as we, as the, the space becomes more professionalized and institutionalized, you know, we do need a lot more reporting around taxes and statements and, you know, the, the opening balances and closing balances and P&L analytics. And these are a lot of things that we're working on as well, because obviously in the, to date, as you correctly mentioned, it's not been like on the top of the list because the old school or OG crypto guys haven't demanded it, but all the new players coming in the, you know, that this is their kind of base level of expectation. And so, you know, we need to sort of be built out to that as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching this grow. You guys growing, watching, looking forward to coming back to Hong Kong and, and grabbing a beer with you guys. And thank you so much, James Quinn. It's been fantastic speaking to you and thank you for coming on to uh, Crypto Unstacked. Well, I honestly think what you guys are doing is one of the most, you know, in the exchange space and in the marketplace space, to, to use the word we were talking about, doing some of the most innovative stuff. I mean, I literally said that to my team when we were starting to kind of you know, use you guys and dig it. And I go, these guys are doing really cool stuff. Like, that, you know, we got to keep up with what they're doing. So I'm just kind of glad you're here. And it's still, a, it's still a space that's quite friendly, which I like crypto and digital assets and people realize that the, the size of the space ultimately, especially the direction things are going, is going to become much bigger and they're better off just sort of seeing, you know, making friends and appreciating what's going on in the space. And I, I just love what you guys are doing. I'm glad we've, we've managed to become partners over this time, really. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for your business and for becoming close friends as well. So thank you. All right. Take care. Sir. Bye.